We're live. Welcome everyone to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us and during the live stream here on YouTube. And with that said, Jeff, take it away. Good afternoon. Thank you, Drew. Good afternoon, Chase. Joe, Chase in Fishers, Indiana. Drew, Chase, Joe. All right, let's start over. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe. I'm in Elmira, New York. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm Chase. I'm in Fishers, Indiana. And I'm confused, and I'm in a state of confusion. <laughs> um, we, we are going to talk about sin today. Um, and you know what? Let's just start there, guys. Um, let's just uh, don't need a whole lot of introduction. It's a bad thing. Um, there's a tendency to say, well, we all do it, so it's no big deal. But actually, it, it's a bad thing, and we all do it, and it's a really big deal for all of us. So maybe we start with the very first sin. Would that be a good place to start? Do, do yeah. We need, do we need to define sin? That would probably be a good idea, sure. And so would it be fair, and uh, I, this is certainly uh, this is a way that I've heard it been, and described it before, either doing things that God said not to do or not doing things that God said to do. Uh, okay. Sins of commission or sins of omission. Um, so sin is missing the mark, if you will, uh, in the sense of the Bible describes for us God's will for mankind and uh, not doing what God has instructed or going beyond what God has instructed then would be uh, violating his authority. Yeah. I mean, if you just take what you just said, in essence, we are creatures of a God uh, who, who rules and his way is, is the only way. And when we depart from that, then that's sin. Um, some people will, will quote first John and say sin is lawlessness. And they'll say, that's the definition of sin. I'm not so sure that's a definition of sin as much as it's a description. Um, but I think by the time we get through talking a little bit about sin, we're going to have a pretty good idea as to what sin is and what sin is not. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. I, when we come to Genesis three, if it's cool, if we go ahead and head there. Yeah. One of the things I like to point out is it helps you understand what sin is. Everything was good in chapter one and two. Right. I think that starts to help you wrap your head around what sin is. I mean, <laughs> it's this gorgeous, beautiful picture of a earth that God created all on his own. And then he creates mankind and blesses him and gives him so many good things, gives him a lot of the things he created and made in chapter two. But God does give him two things in chapter two. He gives him work and he gives him a command. Uh, two really important things. And of course, there was the command that he gave him in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives the first, I guess, maybe second command, the first one being be fruitful, and multiply, but what really is the command in terms of what God's will is? My will is for you to not eat from this particular tree in the garden. So we need to talk about the actual sin and, and the motivation and all of that. But I want to pick up on something you said, Chase. Mm -hmm. in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And then you have the story of the first sin. And then you come to chapter 3 and, and you have this. 
Uh, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We go from everything was good to this description of, of the state of affairs. And then, of course, it talks about God driving the man out of the garden. And so it's a picture of every, everything being ruined and defiled and man being driven away from the tree of life and, and in essence, from, from God. And it's easy to say, well, okay, but God imposed all of that. Okay, God imposed all of that. But the fact is, it was a consequence of sin and what this should indicate to us. In God's eyes, our relationship with him is ruined to the extent by sin to the extent that this is the con consequence. Everything that he gave us is, is ruined. Uh, I don't know. This, maybe this is not a good illustration, but it comes to mind immediately. One of my children, she had a bad habit when she was little. She would write on the walls. She'd write on the walls. So I, we got our little chalkboard and um, some chalk and things that she, so she could write on this chalkboard. And you know what she did? She continued to write on the walls and she really liked the chalkboard, but she continued to write on the walls. I, so I took the chalkboard and in front of her, I, I broke it over my knee. She had something that was a blessing and now it's ruined. Yeah, I impose that, but trying to make a point, your behavior has ruined the blessings that I bestow upon you. And um, that's when we realize, and then we start to stop and think, well, what was it that Adam and Eve that was so bad? Well, we're going to talk about that. But if you just boil it down to the outward thing that Eve did and then Adam did, they ate some fruit they weren't supposed to eat. A lot of us look at our own sins and we say, well, my sins aren't that bad. They're not as, as bad as so-and-so's. Well, our sins are at least as bad as eating some fruit that we aren't supposed to eat. And, and what we see in this first story of sin is the consequences of that sin. Yeah. Can I just speak to that? You mentioned what's good. I wanted to come back to that as well. So the pattern in chapter one, of course, behold, it was good. Behold, it was good. Like you said, everything was really good. End of chapter one. But in chapter three, before the woman sins, it tells us that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took of its fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband. She decided that it was good through the devil's lies. This would be a good thing for me to do. Yeah. And that obviously was not the case. I mean, look at everything that happened. And sin, I think another way to define it from that is when we become convinced that what we think is good and what our will is is actually better than what God said is good and what his will is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty boiled down version of what sin is setting our will against the fathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jeff, you said earlier, you know, you described what the action was eating some fruit. Um, uh, I like the way that it's described for us in uh, Hosea uh, chapter six and uh, verse seven. Uh, it says uh, talking about Israel and Judah um, and their unfaithfulness. He says in Hosea 6, 7, um, but like men, or that word is Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. 
Um, uh, I think that some translations have the word Adam there, right? Yeah, um, mine does. The New American Standard, the ESV, uh, New King James has uh, Adam has men there, but in the marginal reference, Adam. And I think that's the idea: is that what they did is they've transgressed the covenant and dealt treacherously with God. Mm -hmm. You know, it may not be that the act in and of itself, if you will, um, uh, nothing ever is, but uh, in and of itself, not that big a deal. But it's a slapping of God in the face. Yeah. So sit on that word treacherously just for a minute there. How, how did, how, what, how was it that what Eve did was treacherous <clears throat> or Adam or both? Well, well, it goes back to, to what you guys have been saying. She looked, she, she had been told don't eat of this or you'll die, but she looked at it and it was good for food. God had given her ways to satisfy her hunger. Any other tree she could have eaten from, but she wanted this one. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make her wise. She believed the lie that God was holding back on her, and this will make her like God in some desirable way. And and so, in essence, she, it was treachery because she is following her own desires rather than God's will. In First Peter 4, there's that contrast between the lust of men and the will of God. And we are behaving treacherously when we decide to betray, we, we, we turn treasonous against our God, our King, and we make ourselves our own desires, our God. Yeah, I guess a question I want to ask kind of goes back to the beginning where you said, where we sometimes talk flippantly, where we all sin. Can we think of some passages real quick, rapid fire, that are a really good picture, like a really visual picture of what sin looks like to God? My mind immediately goes to Zechariah 3 when Joshua the high priest has these dirty, filthy robes on and he's given new clothes. So that's just one off the bat, just wearing filthy clothes and trying to stand before God. I don't know. What else on a list like that would you My put? mind goes to Jesus suffering on the cross. Um, yeah. to, in, in God's eyes, that's that's what's required because of how bad sin is. Bob Hutto is a, a brother in Christ who preaches the, the gospel. You guys, I don't know if you both know him or not, but he I held... He spoke for us a few years ago, and and he talked about the um, uh, the uh, pristine picture that we have of Jesus on the cross from, or that many do, with the little ivory um, crucifixes and that kind of thing. He talked about how ugly a scene it would have been if you think of the wounds and the blood and and all of that. And then he he may have first of all gone back. Or, or subsequently gone back, but he did go back and talk about the scenes of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And you think about when they're offering these sacrifices, all the blood, all the smells of all those carcasses and the burning flesh and all of that sort of thing. And we think of it as these religious rituals and, and don't think about just the assault upon the, the senses it would have been. And his point was, this is how God views sin, that this is what is necessary uh, to deal with the defilement that sin is. Um, and that, that made an impression on me. Yeah. I think about the flood, too. I mean, just envisioning God destroying the whole earth and like literally picturing the, the, the world just in complete destruction. Um, 
as a picture of, of sin, because of course God did that because of sin on the earth. So, okay, so Adam and Eve commit this first sin and they're separated from God by it. They followed their own desires. Um, as, as, as we go through the Bible, um, is sin a rare thing? Is it a common thing? Is it, um, are there certain people who are sinners and other people who are not? What do we see in the Bible? I mean, the whole story, it seems like it's centered around how to fix the sin problem, right? I mean, even in the narrative of Genesis, it seems to be the one of the whole themes, at least to me. I mean, though, chapter three, man and woman messed up. Chapter four, okay, here's their offspring. How are they going to do? Well, they, they don't do so good. Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. All right, we'll start over into the days of Noah. Well, hopefully he's going to be, I mean, remember what his name meant. Uh, in chapter five, um, now I'm blanking on it. Noah, which meant, uh, or they said in verse 29, he named Noah saying, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground. The Lord is cursed. And Noah goes on to build his ark. But even after that, he gets drunk and there's still sin in the world. And then Abraham comes on the scene and you think, oh, well, this is, this is going to be the final picture of, having a walking relationship with God, an entire nation dedicated to God. But even Abraham has his ups and downs. His children certainly do. They're slaves in Egypt. God delivered. I mean, the whole picture is what what is going to be the savior of sin? Would you guys say that's a fair assessment of the Bible? Yeah. yeah. So you, you've got this uh, comprehensive passage in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, uh, and so, yeah, as far as your question there, Jeff, yeah, no, sin is not uncommon or rare. Um, uh, every individual has uh, given into temptation and rebelled or acted treacherously, betrayed the Lord. And so, unfortunately, it is far too common, even amongst the good people, like the ones that uh, Chase has just mentioned, people like Noah and Abraham and uh, go on and talk about somebody, you know, one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament, David, um, uh, you know, see a man after God's own heart. And yet, and then even tying back to your question about describing sin, passages like Psalm 51, um, as David saw himself in sin and the uh, separation that that caused between him and God. It, another passage in Romans, you mentioned Romans 3. We come two chapters more to Romans 5. Therefore, it's through this is Romans 5, 12. Therefore, as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. This translation says, and so death passed unto all men for that all sinned. I think if I were translating this, I would translate it. And so death passed unto all men whereupon all sinned. But the point is, that all did sin. Um, so the, the consequence then is we're all in the same boat as Adam and Eve were when they sinned. Uh, we're all in that boat of being responsible for the defilement of the world and being excommunicated from paradise, so to speak, to be, to be separated from God by our sin. Um, we look at these great men that you mentioned, Abraham and David, and, and we see great men of faith, and yet 
uh, even they sinned. And and was it was it a big deal or was it was it a trivial deal when they sinned? They saw themselves as being apart away from God, and that was a horrible position for them. You read Psalm 51, Psalm 32, uh, or two Psalms that really show, I think, a contrite heart, how someone someone should feel when they sin. Should somebody feel that way only if they commit adultery and murder somebody to cover it up? I mean, you mentioned Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's psalm after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed in an attempt to escape the consequences of his sin when it was found out she was pregnant. Um, and so we read Psalm 51, and wow, he, he, he's really torn up over this. He has a broken and contrite heart. Um, but yeah, but he really did something really bad. And so we can look at others and even people today still even justify sometimes some of the sins um, that uh, the Bible labels as sin and as bad. Think about Abraham. He just told a little white lie about his uh, half-sister, full wife, uh, Sarah. And, uh, uh, you know, just to escape any danger on his part um, uh, seemed like a a rational move to make. And yet that was clearly against God's will. And and in his case, there's the, there's, there's a point here. He, he didn't think about what he was doing as hurting anyone else. Right. And yet in both cases, the, well, let, I've got Genesis 20 open. This is where he is mm-hmm. uh, with, he's dealing with the King of Gerar, the Abimelech. And he has said that Sarah's his sister. And so Abimelech has taken her to be his wife. God comes and says, you're a dead man to, yeah. to Abimelech. You've got another man's wife is the idea. And of course, he says, I didn't know in the integrity of my heart I've done this. I, I, I had no evil intention. And God says, I know that. And I've kept you from sinning here. But uh, you need to restore the, the woman to the, to the man. And so Abimelech calls Abraham in verse 9 and says, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have, not, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech was quite incensed that Abraham got him in trouble, so to speak, or very nearly got him in a, in a great deal of, of trouble. And I think that's that's one of the things we sometimes overlook. We do things that that are wrong and we don't realize I've offended God. And part of why I've offended God is what I have done does hurt other people. We got a comment here. Uh, Anger is the seed of murder. Anger is the seed of murder. Oh, so anger. So murder. We yeah okay great comments to to show that idea of of, you know you don't have to be a murderer to uh, be guilty of a horrible uh, sin in God's eyes at least Uh, even if man doesn't value uh, the 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 horror and the consequences thinking about the Sermon on the Mount I suspect and yes uh, in Matthew five. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Verse 22, but I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And our, our viewer is saying the anger leads to the murder. 
And so somebody says, well, I haven't killed anybody, but have you been angry in, in a wrongful way? Yeah. Yeah, great, great connection to make. Uh, it's not just the action, but it's the attitude, the heart in it. And that sin sin leads to more and more sin. I mean, you, you get further and further in and you end up committing just detestable acts. I use David as an example. You know, whenever he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop, did he already know right there, then and there, okay, from here, I'm going to end up getting her pregnant. And then after I get her pregnant, I'm going to call her husband back. And you know, he didn't know all of what he was getting into when he just looked at her and lusted after her. He and did what he wanted in the moment without thinking about the consequences. That's right. And that's what sin often does. I think about that common anger leads to murder. Well, that's true of a lot of sins. It is. It might start off innocently, like we say, but it turns into something much bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Lord knows that. And but so that's part of the, the deception of the devil. The devil doesn't want us to think about the consequences. Uh, the devil did not want Eve to think about what this would do to her relationship with God. He says, oh, this will make you like God. Um, and so he allows her to believe a lie so that she can just focus on what she wants in the moment. She's not thinking about all that's going to go wrong if she does this. In fact, she's been lied to and told nothing's going to go wrong. Um, and I like I like your your point, Chase, about David. David wasn't thinking about all that could happen if he slept with Bathsheba. He was in the moment. He wanted, you know, people talk about let's just be in the moment. Let's just live in the moment. That's a bad philosophy of life. Indeed. So, all right, we talk about sin, the very first sin, and and we see on the surface, on the face, it doesn't look that bad. And a lot of things that we've done wrong, we said, well, I haven't done like so and so, and yet. At its core, at its heart, it is treachery. We do what we want rather than what God wants. I like like your point from Hosea, Joe. And so it, it is very serious. And then we've kind of gotten around to talking a little bit about the fact it's pervasive. Everybody does do it. That doesn't trivialize it. It says we're all guilty of treachery. We're all guilty of making ourselves our own God, doing what we want in the moment rather than God's will, and we don't think about the consequences. Uh, the fact is, we don't even know all the consequences of our sin. That's why we have to put our trust in God and just do what he says. So what about the idea of, yeah, so, okay, I've, I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things. And so doesn't that kind of um, minimalize or outweigh the the bad things that I've done that somehow my good deeds undo my my sinful actions? Um, uh, would there be a, a, a any basis, as some have suggested, for there being like a scale that you know a, a, a set of scales that we're going to be weighed on? Was it um, what was it was it in Jeremiah where it says all our uh, um, our garments are as filthy rags. Or I can't quote it. How does that go? Yeah, um, I want to say Jeremiah seven, but I don't think that's going to be it. Um, uh, I, you know, we should know this, guys, and I'm not coming up with it right now. Chase, you're the man with the quick texting abilities and all that. Find that for us. <laughs> Give me your paraphrasing in the New King James version. <laughs> Our, my paraphrasing is Isaiah all, our is all our righteousness is as filthy rags. How about Isaiah 64, 6? Really? I had it in Jeremiah. 
Well, it's close to Jeremiah. It's just a couple of pages. <laughs> Isaiah 64, 6. All of us who have become uh, like one who is unclean <clears throat> and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. What does he mean by all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment? I always think of a, a clean white shirt and it's fresh out of the laundry. And I sit down and a bottle of ketchup or the bottle of mustard, whatever on my hot dog, and it squirts it. Oh, it hits my shirt. But it's only one spot right here. So would I say this is is this still a clean shirt? I'll still wear this shirt. No, it's it's a dirty shirt. It's ruined. Right. Um, so so our viewer comments, one cannot good deed oneself into heaven because you know, I can have lots of clean spots on my shirt, but it's still a dirty shirt because of the, the uncleanness. Uh, that, that's what sin in our lives does. It just it's a spotted. It's a it's not a it's not a life without blemish. It's a blemished life. So almost every time that I'm studying, particularly in the latter chapters of Isaiah, I just sort of feel compelled to like, oh, what's led up to that statement and then what's led up to that statement and you know when i look at isaiah 64 6 there that you just read mm -hmm. i i eventually get back to isaiah 59 and uh, seeing uh, that the lord's hand is not shortened he cannot save and his ear heavy that he cannot hear but your iniquities have separated you from your god and your sins have hidden his face from you your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue muttered perversity. No one calls for justice. And he just begins this description of just a horrible condition where we are literally out of touch, unreachable uh, because of our sins, not God's fault, but we have completely pulled ourselves away from him. And there's nobody available for to intercede on our behalf. The Lord looks and looks and there's no one there. So the God says, I'll do it myself, Isaiah 59 and in verse 16 and following. So God puts on this uh, righteousness that we just talked about that man is incapable of, Isaiah 59, 17. And then that leads to the Redeemer coming uh, to Zion in verse 20 of Isaiah 59. So before we turn our focus to the Redeemer, just a, a Matthew chapter 19, the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me concerning that which is good? One there is who is good. Um, in Romans chapter 7, um, Paul is talking about even the man who desires to be righteous, but he, apart from the grace of God in Christ, he's, he's condemned. And he says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Well, he's just described this as a man, this man is as one who's striving to be righteous. He doesn't want to do the bad things he he does. Well, isn't that a good thing? When Paul says there's no good thing, well, he's not saying that he doesn't do some things that are in individually good things, but he's saying good does not dwell in this man. This man, this man's sin defiles the man. He's a defiled man. So, all right, guys, this is the question I want you to to help me with here what what we're saying is sin is bad really bad any sin is really bad we've all sinned we're all thus separated from god so what do we all deserve what is it that is the just consequence for our lives uh and and the way we've lived them the way or excuse me uh the man that sins shall die death 
death, yeah. death, condemnation to death, eternal death. And and so there are a lot of people who who just don't believe they're going to hell or that good people they know could could possibly be going to hell. And the fact is, we're all going to hell. We're all condemned, except for something that God can do to fix the problem of our sin. Um, and, and that has to be done. Uh, else we all deserve condemnation. And I think if we start with that premise, that we all stand condemned and, and worthy of eternal condemnation, we don't find ourselves in that trap of thinking, well, if if the Bible is right about this or that or the other thing, or that you have to be baptized for the remission of sins or so forth and so on, that would mean all these good people are lost, and that can't be. The fact is, we all deserve to be lost. If we start with that premise, maybe then we'll understand when we get around to seeing where salvation is, and that that's the only way. Yeah, punish, punishment is uh, a reader uh commented here that that's the the reward uh if you will the the consequences of of sin okay so sin is pervasive we've all sinned it's it's really bad it separates us from god it makes us worthy of eternal condemnation so then uh what is the solution there's only one answer and that's the blood of jesus why in a way, your answer is still death. Yeah. Okay, but explain, Chase. So, obviously, Jesus, is he dies on the cross, but he doesn't just die on the cross because all the Romans and Jews wanted him to die. He took our sin on his body. Uh, Isaiah 53 prophesies about that. First Peter 2 talks about that. He bore our sins in his body. And so, sin is still being punished, but it's punished in the body of, of Jesus. Okay, so what what you're saying is our sins are going to be punished one way or another, mm-hmm. and and, and there, there's only two choices. There's only two choices. Either we take the punishment for our sin, and that means we're condemned, or else Christ takes the punishment for our sin. Is that yeah. right? That's right, because the third option really isn't a viable one, which is that God just forgets the sin. He, Why is that not viable? viable? Why is that not viable? Because God cannot be just in that scenario. He, yeah. he said sin's not that big of a deal if it doesn't have to be punished. And 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 Romans three, I think, is is a profound passage in verse twenty six. In in the sacrifice of Jesus, the propitiation is the word that gets used yes. here. Uh, God shows His righteousness. Another word for righteousness is justice. Um, what does that mean? Well, it would be unjust for God to just say okay, your sin is no big deal. You can come live with me eternally anyway. I'll just I'll just pretend it didn't happen. That would be unjust. But God has Jesus take the punishment that, quote, he, God, might himself be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. So he can justify you. He can justify me. And at the same time, justly deal with our sins. And that's 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 a difficult conundrum, uh, an impossible conundrum, I guess, apart from Jesus Christ's sacrifice. I, I always put it in terms of a judge before whom a criminal is brought, and it's very clear this criminal has done horrible things, 
And, and for whatever reason, the judge may want to be merciful to this criminal, but the judge's job is to be just, and he cannot be both. It, it's one or the other. He can either let the criminal go and be merciful, or he can be just and punish the criminal, but he can't be both at the same time. God is in that conundrum, and yet what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3 is he found a way to both be just himself and justify the one that has faith in Jesus. And so why is it the one who has faith in Jesus that gets justified? Well, it's because in putting your trust in Jesus, you, he says in Romans 6, you become a part of Jesus' death. You're baptized into Jesus' death so that when Jesus suffers on the cross, it's your sins, my sins with him uh, being punished on the cross. And so if I am a part of Jesus' death, if I'm in Jesus, then God has been just with regard to my sins. So even though Jesus died for the sins of all, it is still incumbent upon each individual to accept that, or as Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians, to be reconciled to God, uh, to, to to turn to Him. Yeah, and and I I I guess it was um um well I can't think of his name right now, um but anyway. Uh, the, the the connection was made for me back in Leviticus chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 16, where in the Old Testament, it wasn't just that there had to be a sacrifice for sins. Of course, the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus, but God pre-enacts this in some of the Old Testament rituals, and they would sacrifice goats and sheep. But it wasn't just that a goat or a sheep died, and so, okay, you're off the hook, people who sinned. It was there had to be a connection between the death of that animal and and the sinner, the, the worshiper who came. He had to be connected with the death of that animal. And the way they, that connection was made was he would put his hands on the head of the animal. And in Leviticus, the 16th chapter, where you have the discussion of the Day of Atonement, it talks about laying the sins on the animal. Obviously, that's figurative speech. You can't pull sins out of your pocket and set them on an animal. But the point is you are being connected to the sacrifice of that animal such that when it dies or when it's sent away into the wilderness, that represents your sins. And we have to be connected with the death of Jesus for our sins to be counted as punished in his death. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Leviticus 1 and verse 4, right? Um, uh, says, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Yeah. And so there's that connection that you're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when we get to the New Testament, uh, you know, we have the language in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we died with him, we shall reign with him. Well, when do we die with him? Well, Romans 6 chapter talks about being baptized into his death. Like it or not, people, God has said when you are baptized into Jesus Christ, you're baptized into his death, uh, you become united with Jesus, you become united with him in his death, and so your sins are now punished, and God is just. He has punished your sin, and so having done that, then he can accept you as, as his uh, and still be a just God himself. But if I've not become a part of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's death means nothing to me. And if 
if his death does not take away my sin, then I'm, God is going to have to be just. I think we see allusion to God's justice back in Isaiah 53. Do you guys see that same thing? Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think his uh, trans bearing uh, transgressions on our behalf, I'm not quoting that at all, uh, bad paraphrase maybe even, um, uh, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Um, uh, verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Is that the idea you're thinking about? Well, and I was thinking especially of verse 10 and 11. Uh, I don't like the New American Standards translation here, but the New American Standard verse 10 says the Lord was pleased to crush him. I think another translation says the Lord was willing to crush him. And then verse 11 says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There has to be satisfaction for the wrong that we've done. And Isaiah 53 paints a picture of Jesus suffering horribly, not for what he did wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, but for, for our transgressions. But in so doing, he make satisfaction for our sins. Somebody says, well, that, that seems rather harsh. That seems rather, well, no, what it is is justice. And everybody wants to talk about God as a loving God, uh, which he is. But the Bible just as clearly paints a picture of God as a just God. And I, I make the point always, we expect our judges, our human judges to be just. Why would we expect anything less of the most just being in the universe? And, and and what what is unloving about God demanding uh, holiness, and yet knowing that man falls short of that, providing within his scheme of redemption uh, the sacrifice of his own son to to take a place. That's how we know love. First uh, John three sixteen. By this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us. You know. So Go ahead, Chase. I wanted to throw on top of that Romans 5, uh, 8, God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah. It, it wasn't like we were perfect and good. I mean, it wasn't a good trade-off at all, really, uh, at all. I mean, by any means, was it a good trade-off? But that shows how much God loved us. But so we may have in our society a uh, a huge gap in parenting but I think nearly everybody would still recognize is a mother or father loving by completely ignoring the sins and rebellions of a, of a child. No, so, you know, that, that's, that's not a loving parent to just, Oh, well, I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to excuse that every time. That's not, that's not a loving action anyway. That's an indifferent parent. That's a parent who doesn't care enough about the child to, uh, do what needs to be done. We love our pets more than that. Um, you know, talk about justice for a moment here. We Somebody cuts me off in traffic and is zipping around, and I see him get pulled over a mile down the road, and, ah, yes, justice. Uh, somebody comes across the border illegally. I want justice. Uh, all kinds of situations in life where I want justice. I want justice done. And then we come to God, and, and God demands that our sins be punished. God is just. Well, wait a minute. Oh, I just want God just to be loving. What's that about? Here's what it's about. 
the guy who cut me off in traffic, I didn't cut him in, off in traffic. I didn't do anything wrong. I want him punished. But when it comes to God, I recognize I did do something wrong. So I don't want God to be just because that would get me. Well, God doesn't want to get me. God wants to save me. He wants to save everybody. And he's provided a means for that to happen. But we cannot recreate God in our own image or our own desires and say, no, 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 no. I think the way God should handle it is he should just decide sin is no big deal. That's a different God. And that's not the God who is God. Exactly right. And so we see that picture painted all the way through Scripture, right? One thing we do find about God and sin is the consistency of his displeasure, but also of his providing for and leading to the the cross, right? Everything paint, everything points toward uh, from uh, Genesis 1 on, and everything points backward uh, from now on, uh, back to the cross um uh, that's the central event and so we have a lord providing for and meeting together that justice and mercy that that you described so so if the whole bible is is all about this magnificent scheme this magnificent plan whereby god is going to provide salvation he's going to provide salvation from sin forgiveness of our sins make it possible for us to stand righteous in his eyes and have eternal life. This is the whole plan. And apart from that plan, we deserve eternal condemnation. And I reject that plan. I ignore that plan. I don't believe that plan. Or I just don't care enough to look into that plan. Where does that rightly leave me? Some people have trouble with the statement. It's over in Matthew, the seventh chapter. Um, in Matthew chapter seven, and I think it's verses 12 and 13, or is it 13 and 14? It's 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter you in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are they that enter, enter in thereby. For narrow is the gate, and straighten the way that leads to life, and few are they that find it. I don't know how to read that other than to conclude that most people are going to be lost. And there are a lot of people who have problems with that. They can't, they can't get around. They can't get their heads around the idea that most people, that's not fair. But if we start with the understanding of what sin is, that we've all sinned, what it does to our relationship with God, we're all going to be condemned except we embrace God's plan whereby we can forgive him. And if we reject that plan, what is left for us? What do we deserve? Condemnation. And, and to narrow it down even more, I mean, people might read 13 and 14 and think, well, I could see that being true. There's a lot of Muslims out there and Hindus and a bunch of other. Well, Jesus narrows it down in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. But only the one who does the will of my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who who will include Jesus in their in their lip service, thank you, Jesus, and Jesus saved me. I accept Jesus as my personal savior and so on. But they don't do the will of the Father. Uh, they don't become part of Jesus' death. They're not baptized into Jesus' death. They don't they don't walk in his ways. And so they're really not putting their trust in Jesus. Um, so so okay. 
Um, what we've said so far, sin is really bad. Every sin is really bad. Even eating some fruit they weren't supposed to eat amounted to treachery because it set up themselves as their own God rather than the God who truly is God. And that's that's treason. I like your passage in Hosea, Joe. I hadn't, hadn't really made that. I hadn't thought of going there. But uh, then we looked at the fact that sin is pervasive. David sinned. Abraham sinned. And, and that's not to say, well, so it's no big deal. It, it was a big deal. And it and it it ruins things. Uh, David's life was ruined from there on in terms of just the, the tragedy that it brought to his life. And we can say, well, it's God. Some, I can imagine somebody saying this. Well, it's God that ruined things in the Garden of Eden. He He's the one who brought upon the curse upon the ground and everything. Well, yeah, but God's the one who's in charge. It's it's his. It's sin. David said when he sinned with Bathsheba, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned, praying to God. What God sees is that we rebelled against him. And so the blessings that he had created for man, that can't go on. And so man has to see he needs to turn back to God to have the blessings from God. Uh, but turning back to God means yielding to his will and yielding to his plan. And his plan is this is this plan to save man in Jesus Christ. And if we reject that, then we're going to be condemned. So any final thoughts, guys? Okay, well, thank you all. And uh, Lord willing, we will see you again next week here on Bible Quest. Wow.